Thrown like a star in my last sleep, I open up my eyes to be the fine hour by a sea, gazing with tranquility. Because when I heard a goody man came singing songs of love, then I heard a goody man came singing songs of love. Hurdy goody, hurdy goody, hurdy goody, hurdy goody goody. Here comes the hurdy goody man, he's singing songs of love. Histories of ages past, unenlightened shadows past, down through all eternity, the crying of humanity. And here come the hurdy goody man, he's singing songs of love. Hurdy goody, hurdy goody, hurdy goody, hurdy goody, hurdy goody. Roly poly, roly poly, roly poly, poly man. Roly poly, roly poly, roly poly, roly poly, roly poly. Here comes the hurdy goody man, he's singing songs of love. Hurdy goody, hurdy goody, man, he's singing songs of love. Ah. Hurdy goody, man, Donovan. One of the best credits roll songs ever at the end of Zodiac. I saw Zodiac. I saw Zodiac at a uh, advanced screening. Like this, I got a little pamphlet, like a little card. Hey, go and see this for free. Great, cracked, packed, packed theater. And when the and when uh, Jimmy Simpson, when the when the McPoyle, he goes, that's him. And it cuts the black, and he goes, before he could be interviewed, Arthur Lee Allen died of a heart attack. I heard the entire crowd. Do this collective exhale, this disappointed sigh. It happened in unison. And I got to say, one of the most, like, you know, you talk about how the whole point of the, uh, the theatrical experience is to have those, you know, communal moments. And usually they're of catharsis, but just to like to have this theater-wide collective thwarting of catharsis at the very end, it was powerful. Uh, then the fucking creepy-ass hurdy-gurdy man kicks in. It's great. Like you're fucking haunted by this guy who's, who can just play you a song of love and then you'll never have it consummated. It's great. Which is why Zodiac is not really about how you can't know about what happened and like it's impo- the impossibility of certainty. It's not about that at all. That movie is adapted from a book by a guy, Robert Graysmith, who had a pet theory. He's not one of those guys who looked at, you know, this un... Uh, solved historical mystery and decided to like bask in the uncertainty and like turn that into a creative pursuit. No, he said, Hey, yeah, this Arthur Lee Allen guy, he did it. And the book and the movie, even though I think Fincher is much more ambivalent about it and probably doesn't even necessarily believe that just by virtue of telling Graysmith's story, you smuggle in this like actual narrative. And that's the reason that everybody sighs at the end when we saw it is because they're like, fuck, we couldn't have our knowledge consummated. And that's really what it's more about. It's about how even if you know what happened, you can never 
be satisfied. It's not that you can't know. It's that knowing does not provide the satisfaction, the culmination that knowing is supposed to. Because if we're not seeking knowledge of what's really going on, then what else are we doing, right? But what does that knowledge gain us? Nothing. It can't gain us anything. Because we can know anything and it won't change our behavior. That's why when I talk about great songs uh, that bespeak to the specific like contours of modern alienation from the self, uh, Leonard Cohen's Everybody Knows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Like, people want to, oh, if only everybody knew that, who killed Kennedy. It's like, what? Two-thirds of the population think that in some way or another the government was responsible for the assassination of President Kennedy. What are they doing about it? Why would that number going to 100 change anything? And that is the fundamental problem with conspiracy theory as a heuristic for understanding history or the current moment. Not that those things didn't happen. Of course they happen. You cannot have a, a, a global capitalist hegemony without a full co- uh, coercive apparatus. We have some fantasy, even like with a relatively radical critique of American imperialism, that there's the places where we coerced capitalism into being and the places where we, uh, uh, where we basically bribed it into being. But no, every level of social order, from the President of the United States, if his name is John Kennedy, to exploited workers and certainly minority workers in America, there are people who have to be brought along coercively, outside of the law. Because remember, we're, not, we're talking about how there's X amount of coercion that needs to maintain a, cla- a class rule, right? Over time, that number has to get bigger because there's more people who are being exploited. Their, or, or, their exploitation is organizing them around the feeling of being exploited. It requires more output. There has to be a, continue, a, a escalation of uh, coercion. Now, part of that is buying off some people so they're not fighting, so that they don't have to be coerced. And that makes it easier to concentrate on those who cannot be reconciled in any way to the system as it exists. And so that doesn't just mean imperialism in the third world. It means assassinating the president if he gets out of line and doesn't understand what's going on. Doesn't, hasn't really, doesn't understand the, con- the real context of America's victory in World War II. Or the real, not the context, the real uh, consequences. Like when the United States decided to, to go to war with uh, the Soviets and with the former colonial countries on behalf of the uh, political order that, the, uh, that Imperial Europe and Japan had left on the world. They decided we are going to uh, put this thing back together, Frankenstein style. And that means we're going to have to repress the fuck out of a lot of people. And that includes people at the heart of empire. And so it's no coincidence that as the CIA is being formed, you have the creation of, or you have the, the Red Scare, this cultural war on communism that has political uh, effects in the form of purging uh, the most progressive elements of the American the Democratic Party coalition, which could have steered the U.S. towards some sort of negotiated uh, co-management of the post-war world with Russia. And I know that seems insane, and it's like, yes, 
The moment FDR's brain caved in, that possibility went away. As soon as Truman, the fucking party hack from Missouri, whose mom was a Southern uh, partisan who uh, talked about much about how uh, she fucking uh, thought it was good that Lincoln was assassinated. And when she went to the White House to visit her son, she wouldn't sleep in the Lincoln bedroom. So, like, you've got this cultural package in this guy, coupled with the fact that he owed his position to the Democratic Party. Not to the coalition of left-wing and progressive forces that involved, that, in, that was centered in the Democratic Party, but which had come together in a popular front to win World War II, in alliance with the Soviet Union. The question was, will that alliance continue into the task of rebuilding the world, or will it turn into war? And we made the choice to do that. The story we get told is that Stalin was this, he basically closed the Iron Curtain down, said, no, fuck you. And we had to, in order to defend freedom, match that. But that's not what happened. This is what's happening, by the way, while uh, the CIA is being built, while Truman is authorizing the building of the CIA. Oh, yeah, no, and the thing is, Truman was, like, progressive for the time. He had genuine progressive values. He wanted to continue the New Deal, but he hated communism more. And he didn't hate communism merely because he was an apparatchik of the Democratic Party. He also hated it for visceral personal reasons. Because it suggested miscegenation. Now, again, that's you say, oh, you're talking about uh, this is idealism. No. Why is Truman there to be president in the first place? Because the left couldn't keep Wallace on the ballot at the 44 convention. This is where you see that by the time you get to the creation of something like the CIA, the die has been cast. And so while you can describe what the CIA does, up to and including assassinating the president, doing MKUltra mind control, selling, uh, building up every network of uh, large-scale drug, mar- drug uh, sales in the world, standing up the cartel system that the, uh, that the global supply chain then piggybacked on top of, they did all that shit, but they did it in a context where the... The, the, the social muscle necessary to like really resist the imposition of capitalism on its own terms, which the New Deal state had pushed against and was being eroded away from the position of like being able to sustain. That, uh, what that meant is that while the CIA had to do what they did to maintain the, the position they were on, they were not doing it in a context where they're dis- that any of their discrete actions were determinative. They were always happening after the decision had been made, after the crucial real battle between the, the, working, the global working class, the, bro- gro- the global proletariat, humanity at large, and the 
the algorithm that is like parasitically sitting atop like the uh, the human institutions of capitalism of the capitalist like developed world. And so, while you can map the terrain, fixating on proving specific events within the context of the deep state and with the context of our understanding of, like, the role intelligence plays as a crucial buttress to the structure, the greater structure of capitalism, like, it's a necessary component. It cannot be done away with. The CIA still exists and does stuff. Although I would argue that now, intelligence is more of like a make-work program. Because one of the things that the CIA did was make itself obsolete. Like it didn't have to intervene at the most at those crucial points anymore because they didn't have to worry about those moments arising. Because instead of trying to do Keynesian, uh, like inefficient, um, like uh, mid-century modernist shit, like brainwash individual people. The market can just unleash the product of, uh, of, of, you know, of, of raw research carried out under, like, the, the funding of the government, privatize this technology of the Internet that is going to structure human life in a way that is going to tear us out of any kind of social context where our actions can have political consequences. That's why we have to – we can – as an entertainment only, for entertainment purposes only, we can observe the arc of, uh, of the intelligence state. But if our politics become applying a, uh, a, a, uh, a heuristic of conspiracy to every event as it unfolds, that will only lead you into inevitable uh, neutralization by the fact that that process the process of just taking individual events as they happen and then trying to make a narrative out of them, given the bric-a-brac of culture that you absorb, that is how reactionary popular culture is made. That is how reactionary mass politics, such as it exists, can be made, is through those narratives. What, what, the, what socialism, what Marxism is supposed to do is allow you to look at events as they happen. Neutralize that need to go down a fucking rabbit hole and find someone to punish like you're in a fucking movie and get to the question of how do I improve my conditions? How do I improve the conditions of my children? How do I make the world I live in conform with any kind of value for what human life means? But, my God, no, I can't do that. I have to solve the riddle of who did 9-11, or I have to expose uh, the, the, the pandemic. Like, okay, good, go for it. You're going to end up never finding out why. And what I mean that by that is you will convince yourself, you've already convinced yourself, what you will not have is what you're dreaming about, the fantasy that is pulling you forward, which is that the revelation changes something, a fundamental fact about your life in the world catalyzes a reaction because like even if you are just like a person who likes to talk about conspiracy theories and has no contribution to the research 
and somebody else pulls out a smoking gun, you're going to feel like you were part of it and that it was it's it's your victory. That is going to that's what's going to that's the reason you're involved in this. And the other people involved in this they're trying to get off. You're all trying to get off. Now you can think in your head, I'm trying to get off because I want to overthrow the structures of capitalism that uh, that stop us from being able to organize. And it's like, okay, yeah, I understand you want to do that. But nine out of the ten of the people who are doing it with you don't care about that shit. They want a narrative of violence. They want someone to blame. Then they want to come together to uh, make them suffer, which is the fucking narrative. That's the mass political narrative that fascism offers as an alternative to the pursuit of like socialism as a utopian nirvana. It is no nirvana is impo- or a uh, uto- uh, utopian like uh, horizon, I should say. No, utopian horizons are impossible. We are, it is man against man. There can be no deep cooperation between people. We are strangers to each other, which means we will all eventually destroy one another until there's only one left. And so then we must seek out our enemies and destroy them. And how do we find our enemies? We see. Who does the bad things in the world? And we try to punish them. That's where Q comes from. That is why the center of gravity of like conspiracy theories about the Kennedys and stuff has drifted rightward. You can argue, oh, it's because the left hasn't taken it seriously enough. No, the libidinal uh, gravitational pull has dragged it there. That's why Alex Jones became a reactionary, because he's selling a, a, a politics not of the hard boring of actually changing things, but of a fantasy. A fantasy of, of, of consummation through violence. You're never going to get there is the thing. You're just going to keep running until you smash into the... It, this is the death drive enthroned that represented as fascism that can only be distinguished from the rest, from capitalism in any other condition. Is it... What's the difference between capital? It is... It is uh, the conditions, the material conditions under which capitalism is operating. That is what it, the only difference is. Now, the reason that, but the thing is, is that time is the other factor. It's not just material conditions. If it was material conditions, that we would be back in like classical fascism that we imagine as like a mass seizure of power by a mass political party, represented in our case by the Republican Party. And I could see why we want that to be, because yes, if it's just. A question of like capitalism in deep crisis, where even at the core of it, there's mass felt alienation from the system and and and, vi- and like uh, unchanneled hostile energy. Like that is true, but we are a hundred years past that point technologically. That's what we forget when we think in only one of the two time or place uh, factors that go into considering like a uh, a context that we're considering historically or even uh, con- contemporarily. And what that is, that, that hundred years has wrought is a depoliticized, desocialized people who cannot act politically the way people could act politically in the 20s. They are, and when I say they couldn't, it's not, it doesn't mean that they can't physically do it, and it doesn't mean that they are too weak or pussified to do it. It means that the Things that would should exist to reinforce their actions, like to echolocate against, don't exist. Because people are like, in any situation, this sucks, I want it to change. Then what do you do? In some context, with some degree of uh, technological uh, you know, 
baffling between people, you get one amount of uh, political, uh, like meaningful political organization. But in another, like well, the one we're in, all of our political uh, energies get dis- diffused into entertainment, aesthetics, which in politics is fascism. Like we, like imagine Americans as uh, like. And this is why it is a fascist thing. This is why, like, this is this the, the psychology is fascist, which is just accelerating capitalism. So imagine you're an Aztec, right? And you're like, uh, or like, like everyone understands that you have to uh, that there has to be violence in the enjoyment of pleasure in a rank society, right? Like. Uh, the Aztec uh, tribes that like became the, conf- the, the that came together like on those on those islands in in, in Lake I can't pronounce it. Uh, they were like these warrior bands who like had these hierarchies of power within them, and they were able to come together and and organize collectively by agreeing to turn their violence into games into sport. But the problem is someone still has to die if there's real consequences. If there's real consequences if it's not fully uh, if it's not removed fully from the class system, the exploitation mechanism that is grinding away at every moment at the like very enamel of civilization at the at its bones. So like are are uh, to be a uh, American who considers themselves and lives a life where they are getting, they are addicted basically to capitalism. Put it that way: the way that the, the Aztecs were addicted to their class rule, in the sense that they cannot imagine any other situation where uh, they would be in the same position. Specifically, like their 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 enjoyment of life would be dramatically reduced. And the main reason for that is not even like, oh, they're afraid of not being able to eat a million burgers. And they're afraid of not being able to have a giant McMansion and all that's bullshit. And that's part of it. But that's not all of it. Part of it is a genuine belief that, well, because we treated the rest of the world this way, there's no reason that if the tables were turned that they wouldn't return the favor. This is why Jefferson referred to the slave-owning class of the South as holding a wolf by the ears. Because when you do stuff to people... You know at a certain level it's wrong, and it has to be laundered somehow. You have to make them deserve it. But that only displaces the guilt. It does not eliminate it. And one way that it manifests itself is in a neurotic terror of the other. And the thing is, the only thing that defeats that, this is why, this is the problem, and why one of the reasons we can't act politically the way we used to, is that the only way to get over that is to have faith. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Faith? Yeah. Shit, you have to have faith. Fuck, that sucks. And we got rid of that. And again, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, this is a closed system we're talking about. This is, this is, there is no uh, place for anything to run. It all stays in the system. Uh, It just got displaced to the self. So the only thing we believe in now is the self. And that means that the, the thing that got the fucking, uh, the, you know, millions of um, storm uh, of like brown shirts to go out there and like street fight communists and then 
you know, very quickly, enthusiastically wage a war on the rest of Europe. They did that because they still believed in something beyond themselves. Now, they didn't call it God anymore. That had been destroyed by the 19th century, uh, as Nietzsche said. Uh, but there was still like some notion of a unity to stand in for God in a community, in the, in the, in the sense of, of other people. And of course, the great clash of the 20th century was when we say that, do we mean the nation or do we mean uh, a class? Do we need these nationalist concepts or do we mean a class relationship that correspond, that means that our violence has to be directed upward? This is what I'm saying. Now, the reason fascism took over and uh, was, was taken up, was able to take power, fascist, fascism was able to take power because it was people who wanted a violent reckoning but didn't give a shit at the end of the day about, uh, about a utopian horizon. At the end of the day, they just wanted power. They convinced themselves that that's all that mattered, and that's because at the end of the day, they bought the final lie of capitalism that the self is the only thing. And that is what's eating us is that we are all one way or another captured by a theology of uh, self-worship. And the problem with talking about this is that people immediately turn it into a fucking moral question. Oh, you're all narcissists now. There is nothing else to be. It is like, it's amazing. Like the same people who want to like defend like slave owners or like Vikings by saying like they had a coherent moral code and it was like of the moment and you're, pres you're using presentism to try to, to critique them will then look at their fellow people who are narcissistic in, by the way, the exact same way they are, no difference at all except for branding, and then blame them for it. It's like, I'm sorry, they are not, none of us have ever lived in a different world. I've never breathed the air, you know, like, what the hell is water? You know, that joke, the fucking, uh, the two fish are swimming, and one of those fishes says, turns and says to them, God damn, the water's real warm today. And he says, what water? Or, I'm sorry, what's water? But what this precludes is the mass politics of fascism. Filling the gap? Technology. What does that look like? And to me, it looks like branded techno dictatorships. And because there have to be two brands, because remember, there's another half, there's another group of these people who at the end of the day are just as death worshiping. They also believe the self is the only thing, but they also adhere to a remnant of the Puritan ethos that says that if I do something, that there is a God who will recognize me, some kind of collective entity. History, usually they think of it as, but like not in a dialectical sense, like just in a narrative sense. History will remember them well because they did good things. That's liberals. But of course, at the end of the day, liberals are more addicted to the capitalism uh, then they then are uh, able, again, or willing to act politically to actually challenge capitalism. But they have to sublimate that guilt somewhere, too. And they do it by blaming Republicans oh, and blaming fascists, saying they're making us do this. But they submit willingly. And the way that but the but the, and the way that they'll be able to submit willingly is to federalism. And I really do think the great divorce is much more likely than any claim of the center because the center is collapsing. We've seen the government response to real deep crises right now in the last two years. 
And you cannot, I know people want to say the cruelty is the point and like, oh, these people are doing this because they're, it's a psyop or it's a great pandemic if you're a, a Republican or like a based socialist. Or it's like, oh, it's white supremacy and it's genocide and it's, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing if you're a, a, a leftist. But at the end of the day, it's neither of those things. The state doesn't have the capacity to do it anymore, to do the things it used to be able to do because it has had its guts eaten away by marketization, by financialization. By, by, by the death of the public sphere. It doesn't go anywhere. It is just privatized. Of course there's going to be violence. There's violence every day. There's violence now. 50 people in a fucking uh, trailer got fucking wire seasoned two on the Mexican border just the other day. The violence is everywhere. It will continue. But it will continue to grind up the people it's grinding up now. It is not going to change its target. That's what everyone, the change of target is the breach with the old world that all gives us permission to act and frees us of obligation. And that's what we're all hoping for. When we can finally act out the movie. But for precisely because of that reason, it can't come to pass. Because it's what we need to imagine, and we're imagining that, it can't happen. Because what we're imagining that we need is actually what our libido needs. It's not what the moment requires. It's not what's actually happening. It is a libidinal delusion that we all collectively engage in because that's the only way we can engage in politics is through the narrative spectacle. I hate to reuse that word so much, but it's, it's very meaningful. And the, and the reason we're able to do that is because how much of the actual sinews of the state, even though those are buckling, are automated by capitalism, by the flow of money through the system, by the wind through the, the pinwheel. The reason we're in a huge crisis now, though, is that the thing that fuels this is this, uh, this politically determined input in the form of U.S. dollars that are circulated. And, and, and how and where those, that money goes is a political decision. It has not been fully automated yet. It's behind the times. It's version 1.0. It's literally presided over by fucking nonagenarians. And there is, and the thing is, the system is going to work no matter what. It's going to adapt to whatever crisis politics spits out, and it's going to win because there's, no, there's nothing else contesting anymore. We're all just individuals trying to survive. And what we're going to get instead uh, is continuing immiseration. At the bottom, renters. But, but yeah, essentially... Starting with anyone who does not own a home. And then basically how much, how good their job is, how much access they have to uh, uh, generational family wealth in the, fam- in the form of like, maybe their parents own a house. Their proximity to home ownership. They will be, de- their, their, their misery will be determined by their proximity to uh, ownership, like land ownership. And, and that will be capital ownership, basically. And that will be determined 
both just by like the grind of history, like, Oh, uh, unemployment rate just bumped. Uh, you're all fired. And now you have to live with way less money in the same conditions. And you have to juggle that. And that, you know, eventually you're going to fall off of the beam. Everyone is because you can't stay on it forever. It's, 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 it's ground uh, going away beneath your feet. It's just a question of how long it takes. So that's just the grinding thing in the background happening indiscriminately based on pure money. But then you have the individual encounter with fate that is determined by their proximity to land and ownership. Encounters with the police, encounters with uh, uh, violent criminals, uh, encounters with uh, even hate criminals. Uh, their encounters with d- disease, like coronavirus. Their encounters with uh, discrimination and, and mostly lack of care and interest by uh, intervening institutions because they don't have the money to make anybody care who isn't being paid minimum wage to do so. All right, so this is once again a very long way to introduce a chapter from uh, The Making of Global Capitalism by uh, Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin. We get there eventually. We always get there. So I I did the same thing uh, on Friday, so I ended up having to only do one chapter. And I I don't want to get in the habit of that because the book is very neatly organized into two-chapter parts, and I want to keep that going. So I I decided today I'm going to go through chapter 8. Uh, wrap that up and then do uh, the next section, chapters uh, 9 and 10, week from today, next Tuesday. Oh, but just to finish that thought, uh, what this mean? But then, and then, of course, like encounters with law enforcement, like what's legal, what's illegal to like, you know, because people are going to be on the wrong side of a lot of discriminatory lines in like uh, popular culture. And in legislation, but they will be able to protect themselves with money. It's going to go from something that is an existential threat to something that is an inconvenience and bad and traumatic psychologically, but it's not a direct existential threat. And then for some people, they're going to encounter it stochastically and boom, they're actually going to be the thing everybody else is scared of. And there are going to be more of them over time. Like that's what's going to happen. Like we're describing the imposition of, you know, like a techno fascist regime. But who those people are I'm talking about is in terms of like numbers, percentage of the population uh, and, and sp- specifically like the, uh, they're part of a process that is like social wide is 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 uh, not different. It's, it, and, and this is why. It's not necessarily even going to be that way more, you know, uh, uh, social enemies are going to be extinguished in red states uh, than in than in less fascist uh, blue states. It's going to be that some people are going to be chased around by the state ritually to make everybody feel better in both places. And in both places, that is going to be part of a larger tessellation of like everyday immiseration that will be Socially invisible, because it's not what anybody is going to be paying attention to. They're going to be, because we live as cyborgs and we're cybernetically connected, they're going to experience this state. Like, they're actually going to experience the state. Because remember, we're talking about the people 
who are not falling into the cracks. Because if they were, they wouldn't be on the board anymore. They wouldn't be part of the public, the assumed public. They, by definition, are all on the board still. And what they share is a desire to not think about what's really happening, especially the closer to precarity they are, because that means thinking about their own vulnerability. That is destabilizing. They would much rather think about literally anything else. And so that means let's think about what the state is doing, what we could theoretically be in charge of, even though it's a fraction of the violence being doled out by this machine as it tries to strip the last fucking shreds of profit out of this goddamn uh, globe. And the thing is, that's not, that doesn't say, people think this is doomerism, but the, th- but the fact is, is that, yes, political action as we conceive of it in this forum is impossible, but that's not the definition of political action. That is a fantasy deluded uh, concept, symbol of that term that we use to allow us to carry on with the fairy tale that we're doing politics anymore when we consider ourselves with who's getting elected to these offices that have been drained of any actual authority. And that is why the only meaningful political question is, do you have the horses for that? Which again, and because it is meaningful, it cannot be spoken up. But anyway, the flip side of this is that while you're imagining that nothing can, uh, you know, while you're trying frantically, because you still believe in it, you're trying frantically to, to, to operate these, these uh, you, you're, you're, you, you got to the, the cockpit of the plane and you're trying to move. Uh, okay, here it is. Here's the metaphor. People can understand it. Hell, the right wing thing talks this way too. That like uh, the political project is anyone you can imagine it. And when I say political, I mean, our imagined idea of what a political uh, project is that would involve us mostly voting, sometimes demonstrating, spending money, and joining orgs. And it's like, well, again, that's politics, but it's not, by definition, all of politics. It's the only part of politics that can't be legally spoken of, and therefore it's the only one that's visible in the discourse. So you participate in this thing, and that means that you are fixed on what the state's doing. And so the state is using its limited remaining uh, um, discretion, picking and chooses who is going to be made a public victim of state violence. And again, not evenly applied, organized around those who resist, who get turned into criminals, who get, if they were part of the, the, the citizenry, by acting the way they do, well, they're not really doing legal politics. They aren't people anymore. They have been disintegrated into homo uh, saucere. They're in the big pot of homo saucere with everybody else. Everybody else who fucking either couldn't keep up or tried to fight it. And I think because of that, you're never going to get your horizon. It's going to be a devolution to the states, and then within those states, the continuation of politics. With one side winning more and more, and just doing more of what they always did before, which is 
going to hurt more people over as time because more people as percentage of people in the system are going to be like unambiguously hurt by the current conditions. Not just amphib- not like the people in the center, not like the middle class who are determining <coughs> determining all this psychically. Not just in their feelings, in their fifis, which is what they're doing, and why their politics can consist of voting and legal stuff. Because politics, at the end of the day, is aesthetic to them. Because they're not really suffering. Now, yes, they're suffering generally, but they aren't suffering in a way that alienates them from the system. I'm talking about myself, but I'm talking about millions of other people, too. Now, at any time, cataclysm can break this whole thing open. This, the black swan event can crack it open. And, of course, if there's anybody left to, to look through the wreckage, you'll be able to, of course, show, prove, oh, that thing, that wasn't some random att- event. That was uh, the, the clear and un- ch- uh, unchangeable direct consequence of these uh, earlier actions. And you'll be right, but it won't matter because we can't see it as it's happening. It's, it's all ter- un- subterranean. It's all, our, it's, you're stepping onto like ice and the ice is cracking, but not in a, like at the top where you can see it. It's cracking at like the base and the cracks are like running and deepening, but you're not seeing them. And then the whole thing is just going to burst out. It's not going to. The thing about those is that by definition, they cannot be predicted. So like the same convincing people that a specific type of catastrophe is about to happen is just like trying to convince a bunch of people that uh, a specific conspiracy theory about a a significant crime. Like I'm going to prove that all the school shooters actually are uh, MK ultra uh, uh, gladio people. Okay, good. You did it. Congratulations. Now what? Well, now I believe this. Cool. What are you going to do with that knowledge? I'm going to convince other people too. Well, shit, if you convince them, what are they going to do with it? The same thing you did, which is meaningfully nothing. The thing to take from this, though, is that you still have to live a life. You can't know any of this. You can have suspicions and you can have personal beliefs that guide your decision making, which is what you should be doing all the time. But they cannot be ever uh, a horizon to chase because you can't get there. Like that, why is the not? Why is the conspiracy fantasy a courtroom? Why is it always a courtroom? The conspiracy th- theory uh, fantasy almost always ends in a courtroom revelation historically, and why? It is because the fundamental underlying notion of of the conspiracy narrative and the fact that it's rooted in libidinal politics and not in class politics. Again, there's you can the whole point of class politics is that it fuses the, the libido to class interest, but that is something that only happens through the process of class consciousness formation, which we have lost. So fewer and fewer people have that. What we have instead is just this floating politics that wants somewhere to go, that wants a container, and and uh, conspiracy theories is the container that like it gives to downwardly mobile middle class people. People who have some proximity to home ownership and are feeling downwardly mobile. Plus, of course, the, uh, a big chunk of the middle of persecuted minority groups who are much more generally alienated from capitalism than, uh, than white guys, for example. White guys and girls in the middle 
uh, class who have some relationship to capital in the form of home ownership. The fantasy there is that you get a, you prove it in a court of law, a neutral institution with power to adjudicate right and wrong and punishment. That's the important part. You can prove something and then the court will make a judgment and it will be rendered. And the, and the, the guilty will be punished. And that under, assumes a fundamental uh, in, uh, legitimacy outside of class rule that adheres to institutions like the court and constitution. And that is, I'm sorry, that is, uh, that belief is incompatible, incompatible with socialism. Because as soon as you believe that these institutions have valid, have validity, you have to have an, uh, a personal understanding of why. And that means you have to build a history of America where things like the Constitution and the court system uh, are, uh, did good work for people and help people out. And it's like they did but only in a greater context of being the scaffold of like political uh, of uh, cultural uh, social coercion that allows capitalism to be birthed. It's built in like the it's, it is. There's contradictions that are inherent here, and and social the conspiracy theory seeks to flatten those, and it says you get the court, everybody understands, and and or they ever understand it, and then they persecute it, and and that's what QAnon comes from. There will be a day when all will be revealed. And the thing is, it's just a socialist. It is just a secularization of the, of the Christian fantasy of uh, apocalypse, which, by the way, is the uh, theological, spiritual, like uh, supernatural version of the yearning for a communist utopia. Before you can get the dream of a communist utopia, you have to have the, the religious dream of the kingdom of heaven. And that is why for QAnon, they have totally fused the, the coup, the, <clears throat> the day that Trump takes power, with the second coming. They are identical in their mind because it is the great revelation. Everyone will know the truth, and the truth shall set them free. But we all know that's not true. And the thing is, you don't have to uh, reject religion to believe this. You just have to start from scratch. These institutions, when you look at them, exist to perpetuate class rule. And what that means, it's not about assigning blame to specific institutions for our fate. It's saying, given that, would any situation uh, exist and be, ever be able to be brought into existence when the system as such, manned by people who believe in the system, is presented with evidence that would require its own abolition, would it go forward? No, it would protect itself. <clears throat> it would never allow that court case to come, come forward. And now you can say, well, we have, we don't want a court, we want a revolution. We want to make everybody so, everyone understand and then rebel at once. And uh, that's a, another, you know, headlong run into a brick wall because, again, everybody knows, okay, Kennedy was killed by the government. How many of them are, are now going to believe politics that include a narrative where, uh, you know, Kennedy was killed because he wanted to stop the gays from taking over the government, which is a basic uh, thread of a lot of QAnon stuff? Where are their politics going to go when it's time to fight in the trenches? You know what I mean? It's, they're going to be organized around the, the rooted 
land-based remaining capital that is at war with finance capital and is trying to uh, immunitize itself the same way that the United States tried to immunitize itself in Iraq as like a last gasp effort to resist being dissolved into the world uh, market. As a, because the thing is, the United States is pl- placed in the United, uh, as the, the center of global capitalism was always short. It could never last forever because eventually the system equalizes itself. There can be no America. Like eventually there can be no America in the global capitalist system. It, it, it will dissolve that uh, pole because it, it tends towards this equalization. But it, it requires first, you know, uh, it required the nation state as, as a birthing mechanism. And it has gotten to a point where it's at least its usefulness. But because we do have like institutions governed by people who have understanding of themselves as Americans that's separate from the project of global capitalism, but they responded to that not by revolting against capitalism because they, that is impossible to them to conceive of, trying to invade Iraq and take all of that uh, soft power that we'd accumulated over the Cold War and make it hard with a actual physically inf- manifested empire, the kind that had gone out of style after uh, World War II. But that now, in a, in a Mayday-type situation, we're going to start grabbing for it. And we failed, and that's why it's turned inward, and now we're destroying ourselves in seek of in seek of uh, finding who's responsible for this this declension and punishing those accordingly. So how did we get here? How did we get here? The answer is the 1970s and 80s. Oh, I'm sorry, we're now in the 80s. The 1980s and 90s, which according to uh, uh, the authors of this book, is where capitalism, a global system of capitalism, became not a horizon to be pushed towards, but actually achieved imminence, this thing that we're all seeking, one way or the other, with either annihilation or with uh, communion, you know, barbarism or socialism, classic thing, and we're on the barbarism path, and that's what's driving us all crazy, because we don't want it, but we don't know what else to do. Okay, so uh, we talked last uh, week about what this meant in America, the buck-breaking of the labor movement, basically, in the long and short, and the creation of this credit economy where people are still going to be consuming and they're still going to be spending, but they're not going to be spending wages that they earned as that were per share of profits of the uh, industry they worked in. That was stuck. They were never going to get uh, raises of wages again. They were going to get credit. that would allow them to keep spending on the more and more advanced and cool technology that was capable of being pumped out uh, out of the say, out of the tech uh, uh, boom or the the uh, the tech revolution of the seventies, which of course was something that was publicly fucking funded and then privatized, so that it didn't become this agora of uh, human liberation that the California ideologist idiots thought. Oh, what's this? Material conditions uh, intervene. Oh no, they sell it all to the private market, meaning it all just becomes crap for us to buy. And the further enslave us, oh darn! Again, why do you need? The, you don't need the CIA anymore at this point. You have a digital MK Ultra that is just going to rewire every human brain according to the capitalist imperative. Mission accomplished. Sit back and relax. But again, that doesn't mean that the role of, uh, of enforcement goes away. It just migrates to the private sector. And the, that started in the 80s under Bill Casey, 
After after the buck break, one of the things that got buck broke in the seventies was the CIA and the national and the intelligence service in in, uh, in general. And uh, Bill Casey solved that by creating a parallel, privatized, privately funded intelligence uh, system that was outside of any America, uh, any uh, democratic oversight. There had been theoretical oversight that was exercised in the seventies, and now that was eliminated. And that's that's the that's what Iran Contra was about. In part, was building this network with fucking uh, coke money, building the network with fucking uh, money that got turned into or that with uh, coke money that came from turning uh, uh, Contra supplied uh, yayo into crack in America's inner cities at the same time that the a black working class was being dispossessed. The people who were at the lowest at the totem pole because they had the lowest access to fucking land because they hadn't gotten in on the great post-war bonanza. So they had to be fucking pacified and coerced. Drugs and then the drug war on top of it. It's, it's a perfect system. But again, these are all things that are caused by other things within it. It's this kind of beautiful unity. And we only can like gawk at it and then try to live and apply our understanding of what we're looking at to the condition of building something different and totally separate from, without its institutions and outside of its parameters, because within it, we are trapped. Okay, so so according to the Pandan, uh, Grandin and Panich, 80 to aughts is the 20-year period where capitalism totally... Uh, fixes itself uh, in the global system and and all of the nodes of resistance like the uh, you know the developmentalist uh, uh, third world non-aligned countries or uh, the command economy Soviet Union uh, those were all gone and the, and the Chinese had decided to hitch along for the ride so the, the, the financial institutions that are built now internationally are the ones that t- took this from something that was a system among systems to the only system. Uh, and how this happened in Europe was a further process of buck-breaking different uh, left-wing parties and letting them know the deal and having them get the Ned Beatty speech and finding out you cannot do certain things unless you want to change your relationship to the state in a way that you just can't fathom because you don't believe in enough. You believe in yourself. And again, you didn't choose it. You were born that way. It was dissolved out of you. It was leached out of your bones. What were you supposed to do? So you get Francois Mitterrand, who, and while everybody else is electing reactionaries, we get Thatcher, we get Reagan. Uh, in France, of course, those fucking, inc- the, the French, God bless them, always trying to fucking zig when everyone else is zagging just to show that they are different and that they're not part of the herd. They elect Francois Mitterrand, this fire-breathing socialist platform, uh, and with an absolute commitment to doing the opposite of neoliberalism, uh, advancing state control of the economy the way that the Benites were proposing to do in, uh, in the Labor Party. They got crushed where the, my, the Swedish Social Democrats were proposing with the Meidner plan, which uh, uh, Chile was trying to do. Uh, and, you know, in Chile, because it's in the periphery, you, that's where the CIA shows up to give guns to a bunch of psychopaths and have them murder everyone. Uh, but in, in, in Europe, in comfortable old Europe, where everybody's sitting on their asses and uh, having their 15th uh, uh, red wine break of the day, 
capitalism is doing pretty good for them. They just want to live better conditions under it. So when the state says to them, like Mitterrand, they said to Mitterrand, okay, you can go forward with this and we will destroy the economy. Because the thing that uh, had been created by the end of Bretton Woods was the ultimate discipline. Like the ultimate whip hand had been created when they unpegged currency and they got rid of fixed exchange rates. Because when you let uh, exchange rates float, it means that a particular country can be targeted for destruction to have all of its fucking uh, uh, reserve, currency reserves just taken out of it, like with a, with a giant fucking vacuum. Uh, and the, this happened in a number of countries that the, that the U.S. empire wanted to discipline, who in the third world particularly, like Zimbabwe and stuff, uh, 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 Venezuela. Uh, it's, a cap, it's a capital flight, it's called. Uh, and uh, it basically means a run on your currency. Your currency becomes so scarce in the country uh, that you can't make payments because your the, the capital has fled and turned into money elsewhere. All of those uh, all of those francs are going to get it turned into Deutschmarks and get and uh, sterling in dollars. And you're not going to have any fucking money left. We are cutting you off, basically. Because your ability to build anything, to use an economy, depends on this global cat trade system. So that means you have to work with our, our fun bucks. You have to use the itchy and scratchy dollars that we gave you. So unless you're willing to do a revolutionary government that institutes a like wartime scarcity... And probably go to war with your neighbors, like shooting war with your neighbors. If you're willing to do that, then you can try to have uh, your your socialist France in a t- in this moment. But if you don't want that, if you'd rather stay president of France and for all the socialist and uh, MPs to stay in their position with their three mistresses and their four fucking pied a terres and their their four hour uh, snail based lunches. Of course, Mitterrand and the rest of these guys take the deal. Uh, he went to he went around to the Europe, to the other European uh, governments first, and he said, "Hey, we can create our own coordinated exchange rate group outside of the system, and like you know, pool our resources basically, like and and create a bigger pool of economic activity that could like you know generate its own flows. And it kind of it could have worked because you know, uh, Western Europe is incredibly rich uh, and very." Um, uh, it's it's very rich and very advanced. It's it's like the most one of the most uh, advanced parts of the world in terms of uh, capital accumulation. That means you could actually maybe build something more efficient thanks to that. You could do cyber sin on steroids maybe. But everyone told them to fuck off, including the social democrats in Germany. So once again, a crucial moment in history. And who's there to stab any hope of change in the back? The motherfucking social democrats. I think it's very poignant. So. So Mitterrand, of course, classic French, uh, he was a, a lifelong socialist. That's what he believed in. But, you know, he was also the most French man of all time. Uh, he had like a bunch. He had a secret family and a bunch of mistresses. His secret family came to his funeral. That apparently was not awkward at all. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, there's his other family. Uh, so I guess it wasn't even a secret. It was just other family. And then. So he was, a, he was a man of appetites. He was a man of pleasures of the flesh. And so, of course, he doesn't want to go to town and, and he doesn't want to fight a, guerrilla, a, a Che Guevara guerrilla war. Leave that to the Puritans, you know? Uh, I think it's very fitting, though, that when he was dying, 
You know, he'd had his part in building this machine. And of course, what he got out of it was a fantasy of European integration. So they basically told him, look, we're all doing a structural adjustment. You're going to have to uh, kill the dream of socialism. But we all now, because of these floating exchange rates, the Europeans, we got to come together. We have to create our own currency. And the U.S. basically gave permission right then and there in the early 80s, late 70s to allow the uh, Europeans to go start of this process of getting their own currency in the Atlantic system, not outside of it. That's the important part. Uh, and, uh, of course, Mitterrand's able to convince themselves this is going to be the fu- this is going to be the vessel of human liberation is the European Union. And it's not going to be my generation, but future generations who will lead us to the promised land so I can just be a fucking dirty old Frenchman the rest of my life and help help dismantle socialism as even as it was any nascent structures of it within the uh, French state. Uh, so when he was dying and he's looking back at his career, uh, he decided to have uh, as his last meal, basically, uh, a sumptuous array of pleasures with the centerpiece being Ortolan bunting. Ortolan bunting is one of those things that was like a cool Reddit fact that people learned about in like the mid aughts. And then it like made its way 10 years later to mass culture. And now, you know, like it's, there's a succession reference. Like, I think there's another show that has got Ortolan. Uh, it's, it's now just like, you know, Hey, it's sort of like project paperclip. That's another thing. Like people just started talking about, Hey, you know, we've got a bunch of Nazis, uh, uh, from Germany after the war. What? Uh, and then, you know, now there's like four shows where, uh, where they're playing. I've seen two streaming series in the last couple of years to have, uh, to, to, to needle drop Tom Lair's song, uh, Werner von Braun, you know, um, but yes, it's a songbird an endangered, I believe songbird that is uh, fried whole in cognac, uh, drowned first, I believe, and then you uh, are supposed to eat the whole thing whole in one bite with your head under uh, a napkin. In fact, I think the reason a lot of people learn about this is because of a famous, a relatively uh, popular uh, article that was written about it by a journalist who was at the, at the dinner. Uh, and you eat it under a napkin because you're hiding your shame from God because you are killing and eating this like perfectly pure little beautiful thing and you're chomping through the, the gristle and the bone, the tiny little bones. They're snap, they're stabbing you in the mouth. And it sort of is a ritual that's supposed to, you know, ground you in your pleasure and like situate pleasure within a greater concept, a greater context of sin. And that like you, your pleasure is at the, at the, at the pain of others. Uh, and, like, we all deal with that. The thing about the rich is, is that the rich turn it into a sadistic uh, uh, fantasy of domination. They turn the, the, uh, the, the misery that they carry out on others into a pleasure to themselves. This is the ritualized element that, like, the nerdier members of our ruling class do. Again, not because it's, in, it's, the re, it's power, but because they got to do something. They're not going to actually be pressing any buttons that mean anything. So why not uh, go to the, uh, the Epstein Island and go to uh, Bohemian Grove and molest some kids together and believe, fantasize that you're actually in control of anything because you imagine you're like summoning, you know, the spirit of pure domination from the earth and you're embodying God in that way. 
Uh, have fun. The, the, the wheel is turning no matter what. It's all on fucking autopilot. You're just, you're rich, so we don't, you're not a threat to the system. You spending the money is one of the, out, the, the, the consequences of the system. Like, these people getting rich is not why capitalism is doing what it does. It is an algorithm. It has an unfeeling uh, imperative to create profit. It doesn't care where it goes. We decide where it goes. And that means that we're going to let our rich people sit around and fucking imagine they're in charge of something. And that means people, dumbasses going into politics, smarter ones going into secret societies to do uh, fuck fests because you've gotten past the fantasy of thinking that you're actually in charge if you're uh, carrying out political uh, decisions. And then you get to the point where, okay, the actual violence that I carry out on real human beings is, uh, is the real power. And I can ritualistically magnify it to be my power over others. That is really just the machine's power that I'm piggybacking on top of. So it's all a system of people fantasizing about agency. So like we at the bottom, I mean, I'm not at the bottom, but I mean like outside of the power structure, you know, uh, look up at them and we imagine what they're doing and we tell these stories about what they're doing to explain why they dominate our lives. And they're also telling these stories to each other to explain, yes, that's good. We should be doing that. Uh, but the thing that we have in common is that our actions are extraneous to the fucking uh, outcomes. It's called Ortolan Bunting is the name of that uh, meal. It's technically illegal, but there are places if you're rich and famous enough, you can. But I do think the idea of Mitterrand, like at the end, commit uh, doing that. What's really fascinating is. Did that mean, did he do that as like a ritual of acknowledgement of the pain he has caused? And uh, as part of some greater expiation, you know, but like t t uh, uh, covered in this like facade of pleasure, but like indicating a deeper yearning for penitence. Or was it a fully self-conscious, essentially demonic ritual? The thing is, you'll never know. Can't bring him back. Not fucking. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I do not speak French. So I don't, even if we got him on a Ouija board, I wouldn't be able to tell you. And that, and and the thing is, is that the conspiracy question that all end up, ends up leading in his head. It all ends up at the end of the day leading in the head of people who at the end of, who are also along for the ride. Not to the same degree, but in the final crux of it are. Which means their most extravagant acts of personal will are going to be their least consequential ones. The stuff that's the most against the grain and like personally violent and flamboyant is the stuff that can't be processed through the system itself. The, the, the pleasure they can't get elsewhere, but also the pleasure that is dependent upon the underlying system of oppression that they're part of. All right. So Mitterrand and the French, they get buck broken. They do the great reverse. They do the great turnaround in 81. They say, all right, we're doing structural adjustment. They got us because if we don't, they'll just, they will create hyperinflation because when the money goes away, the only thing you can do is print more of it. But the actual capital has gone. All you have, all you have left is this fiction of money. And it it's represents capital. As soon as it doesn't represent capital, it becomes completely fictitious, which is why the numbers stop meaning anything. And that's why it was always very silly to imagine hyperinflation in the United States, because hyperinflation is a disciplinary tool from the center of capitalism. Now, what's changing now, though, is we're in the final stage shift to where America's central role is being 
removed. And it's fighting back. Iraq was part of it. Uh, Trump's tantrum of the war in Ukraine. These are uh, sanctions against Iran and Venezuela. These are all part of the process of, of an attempt to create a stranglehold, building a wall and building the cyber wall and building alliances with all the fucking uh, tin pot coke dealing maniacs who run Central America. Uh, and, of course, trying to undermine the pink tide in Latin America. Now, the thing is, though, nobody who's resisting them is resisting them along class lines. They're all resisting them along the lines of the interests of their national bourgeois. Russia, that's national bourgeois. China, at this point, I'm sorry, it is national. The thing is, China, you can't really say bourgeois. It's something new. And that's what makes China so interesting and why I am, at the end of the day, ambivalent about it. Too soon to tell, as Chu and Lai said. And also, it doesn't matter. That's the beauty part. I could leave it at that because what am I going to do if China's good? I'm going to go to China? I guarantee you they don't want me there. I'm going to stay here and just shear them on for the side flies with a pennant? What's that going to do? I can leave it at that. That's the beauty of this whole approach is that it allows you emotional freedom from certain subjects that could suck the fucking orgone out of you. So, surprise, and, and of course, in England, uh, not only does, do the, does the right take power, but the Labour Party, you know, uh, this, one of the oldest and most uh, influential and, and uh, Labour uh, social democratic parties in, in Europe, has its socialist principles ripped out of it by new labor. So, I mean, and, and of course, the SDP had already uh, been uh, neutralized. So this is the end of the left. And of course, the, the Communist Party uh, in Italy is going to come apart in tandem with the Soviet Union. So you're losing any real nodes of uh, political resistance. Uh, and of course, this integration that's now going to happen, uh, what's the sh shock of shock? It begins with the end of capital controls completely. Because capital controls are legal regimes that states can use. Because remember, the state is in charge, technically, of this, of this whole operation. The, the state is there at the guidepost or at the trading post, like putting up and down the arm. You could say, yeah, no, you can't take capital out of the country. That means we can do other things and avoid hyperinflation and avoid having our economies destroyed by a capital strike. And that is, that is one of the things that made capital initially resist the uh, post-war state, the post-war Bretton Woods system, because they thought, oh, no, this is going to be – if this is the new deal overseas, then it's capital controls uh, in all these countries, which means our money will not be safe. And they were resistant to it. But guys like Harry Dexter White, literal communists who were making these systems, thought to themselves, like Mitterrand did, this institution is going to bring us about world communism. He could look at the Bretton Woods system and say, we're going to constrain capital and move the direction of uh, investment in a social, direct, in a social uh, of, uh, vector. We're going to turn the, the flow of money, flow of capital development towards uh, social ends. And that was a big no-no. Uh, and of course... They didn't even get the initial. They they only really allowed themselves the law the uh, the uh, reserved themselves the right to impose them in the future. That's all they really got because it was watered down so much. Because you know the the flow was against the left, even though these guys didn't even know it yet at their at their high level. They didn't know it was it was over before that it, that it was already like the tide was turning. 
these systems were going to be turned against uh, the entire, uh, you know, working class everywhere. But at the time, they thought it was real. Uh, but this now, the new, more, the new world, they can no longer afford those baubles. No more capital controls. Goodbye. And this is going to be how uh, these states are all brought in line. Like, uh, there's a big, um, there's huge currency explosions in Argentina. Uh, and then, of course, uh, oh, Mexico. And there's the, uh, the Asian tiger economies in the 90s. I think we'll probably talk about that in the next chapter. Uh, start uh, popping. And uh, that's all because of currency uh, flow, because of the, the, the floating currency uh, exchange system. That's how George Soros made all his money, by the way. I wonder why he's such a social liberal. He's literally the embodiment of the global capital flow as like a disciplinary structure outside of the control of any one government, including ours. Which is why our middle, which is why our political class is going insane and we're eating our own brains. Because we cannot recognize our position and negotiate from it the way that Nixon tried to, the way that Bernie has talked about doing. Uh, because we're afraid of what the fall would look like. Because we're afraid they would treat us like we did to treat them. Because at the end of the day, we are all middle class subjects in our political efficacy. Because our institutions are fully working class, or middle class. But again, not middle class in the sense of even really a relationship to capital, uh, so much as a, uh, an identity or, uh, that is wrapped with notions of race, gender, nationality, uh, culture that uh, warp us away from uh, expressing uh, a solidarity in our politics. We can only hurt each other because helping has been, has been literally eliminated from the programming. So this means that uh, that London, which has been this clearinghouse for U.S. dollars and a way around Bretton Woods from the beginning uh, and a big backdoor of U.S. capital uh, into and out, out of Europe, uh, but had remained their uh, original uh, structures because, you know, London was the first, was the place where, like, classical liberalism was born, where the idea of, like, independent currency, independent uh, uh, an independent market already existed. So there were very few uh, formal regimes of uh, regulation that uh, the city of London had to push against when becoming this you know, global uh, headquarters of capital. Uh, but it had, you know, but it, its institutions still needed to be updated. And part of that was uh, getting rid of any restraints on uh, derivatives, because that's where all the action is going to be now. Uh, the der- uh, a thing that exists now multiplied through time uh, to try to stave off the, the crisis of profitability that's at the center of the system and isn't going anywhere and is only exacerbating. Uh, but it also got, for the first time, an SEC. It's not called that, but it has the same function. And it's because neoliberalism is not the state like deregulating things. It is the state changing how it regulates things. That's it. It is going from uh, regimes of uh, of uh, enforcement against actions, because it, the, the the New Deal thing that pervaded the seventies was basically no, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Uh, 
hindrances on the actions of capital. Uh, what comes in its wake is uh, things that expedite capital in the form of insurance against risk. Because the thing about a financialized economy is that it is much more volatile. You got a classic productive economy. Sectors can sort of assumed to be in the long run profitable, but if you shorten it up, if you make it, uh, uh, if you shorten that time frame, it becomes uh, much more internally volatile, and that means a lot. The, the risk of like catastrophic collapse, like uh, that, the kind that break down an economy and 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 throw a wrench into this whole system, uh, accumulate, and so you've got to minimize those chances. Now, you used to minimize them by preventing institutions from doing things that would lead to that kind of a speculative bubble. Starting with the late 70s, early 80s, it becomes, we will now ensure that if it does happen, it will not lead to a collapse because we'll just pump liquidity into the system. We will just, because all it is is a, when, when, when you have overproduction, it is, it's just, there's no money being made to be spent. You just dump money into the system and you solve the problem until it, the real business cycle kicks in. Like that's the that's the thing at the basis of the of the of the uh, of the Austrian fantasy of the of the of this is that oh you can always just pump money into the bottom and again that is in one condition that's not any more stable than the Keynesian uh, 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 Fordist compromise that uh, that came before it where you had a regulatory state and public spending that wasn't stable either because the material conditions deteriorated. Well, our fucking material conditions have deteriorated. And this is also when Goldman Sachs becomes like a global brand. Goldman Sachs is not one of the old boys on Wall Street. Uh, and, there's, and they end up overtaking all of them in doing business in Europe and selling all these new um, instruments. And that's because the old dog can't really learn new tricks. You know, uh, uh, scientific and financial progress is measured in uh, funerals. You know, it's the Kuhnian incommensurability question. You have this new world and you have these old bankers who just don't, know how to accommodate it because all of their structures are based on these obsolete paradigms. The new guys, hungry, less, at the end of the day, lazy because they're at a, at a, at a lower spot in the totem pole on the ch- in the chain of the food chain, have a motivation to adapt. And they do. And then, boom, they're over there. And Goldman Sachs becomes the vampire squid that like eats the entire economy and that basically administered they become the J.P. Morgan, basically, of the uh, of the uh, 2008 crash. Because it's, it's amazing. It's 100 years. 1907, you have this crash that uh, is rescued by a liquidity dump that is coordinated privately by J.P. Morgan. Uh, then you, they build the, the Federal Reserve and like they create this, this this new system to regulate the thing. You have the but you have the Great Depression and you have the ups and downs of the market. And then by 2008, 100 years later. Uh, the government is carrying out, at the end of the day, what is just the same thing as uh, what happened with Morgan. The, the, uh, the, inst- the, the orders of a player on the board looking to stabilize, situations for their own, the sta- stabilize the situation for their own gain, which is why what we get instead of a re-regulatory state, instead of public investment again, is just fucking liquidity. Liquidity at the top, first and foremost and only. If anybody wants to talk about fucking liquidity at the bottom, that is doing class war on behalf of the rich. But it is it is just more currency, which can be done from the center of the system. But again, our centrality is waning. 
This is a, a, an emergency mission. We're banging on the fucking button to try to keep this thing propped up because we've given up on the hope of, of gracefully changing our lives. It's going to have to crack up. The forces that would have moved us towards accommodation with the forces as they exist were all destroyed. They got assassinated. They got uh, purged. They got uh, outmaneuvered by a more concentrated, more technologically advanced, uh, more coherent uh, concentration of human energy around the, the, the magnet filings around the iron bar of capitalism. So Goldman Sachs is out here de- dealing out these, uh, these instruments in Europe. And meanwhile, all the European banks start embracing American practices, America's best practices. Look at these guys. These guys are killing it. They have lower unemployment than us. They got, everybody wants U.S. treasuries. These, these guys are, are, are where it's at. We want to be like them. And one of the things they embrace is the notion, the, the theological concept of shareholder value, that there is only a short-term fiduciary responsibility, which, of course, this is the ethos you need when you have shortened the time frame robbing from the future to keep things going, um, you have to hit the fucking uh, gas. And the only way to do that is to have people think it is not just like the smart objective thing to do in some, uh, 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 what do you call it? Fuck. Um, uh, Empirical way. It's not something that you're like, oh, observing and then saying that's the right thing to do. It works in practice. No, it's deeper than that. It's theological. That's what they believe in. And that's why now we can, they, can, they can carry out trades that are eating, out, eating from within the heart of the thing that they're trying to preserve. Because they can't preserve that without undermining their deeper loyalty to the shareholder in the moment. Which is a fantasy. It's a, it's a theological delusion that they're, that they're wrapped up in. One of many that flow through all of us at every level of the chain. Um, and so in this context, these new, newly Americanized firms in Europe and Goldman Sachs are flowing. The FDI back and forth, we're getting a huge, huge uh, surge in foreign direct investment both ways. It's European money coming out of uh, or Europe, or it's dollars being bought by Europe in the form of treasury bonds because the, the new Volcker Rates are so much higher that the return is better. And then coming back in the form of uh, Europeans like, uh, buying American uh, exports and, and, uh, and American real estate, stuff like that, like bringing the dollars back. The, dollar, the tidal flow, ebb, ebb and flow, tidal gravity. Uh, so Europe, Europe has higher unemployment. Uh, than the United States during this period uh, consistently through the 80s. And a big reason for that is that uh, in the... So I said that when uh, you had the big drop in profit, everybody did basically the same thing in the businesses, the things that they've been told to do. If the economy, uh, if like the profits drop, then you invest more in the business. You invest in becoming more efficient. Like that's the first thing you're supposed to do. It's, it's a native instinct. And they teach it to you in all the good business schools. Problem is the United States... Uh, that uh, um, the efforts to uh, to make it more efficient ran into the organized workers who said, "Yeah, no, we don't want to be more efficient. 
what the fuck are you talking about? We want uh, efficiency means a more alienated workday for me. No, thank you. I need more money if I'm going to do that. You want me to, you want me to work for less money and alienate myself more? No, thank you. Uh, they were eventually broken, but like it, it made it so that that initial attempt to uh, prop back up profit failed. Uh, in Europe, where the working class was much more organized than the United States, those efforts to uh, become more efficient were even more easily and quickly thwarted. So unemployment uh, stayed up because, you know, those firms, it's, it is true, like they lost their efficiency. Now, again, efficiency is not a good abstracted out of its relationship to uh, capitalism. You know, it's like they don't have to become more efficient to, get, to fix profit. We could get rid of profit. Like, this is only on their underlying capitalist terms that this is a choice that has to be made. But the choice that they end up making is, all right, fine, fuck you. You don't, have, you don't get a job then. We don't have these profits. We're not paying you. So you can sit on your ass. But again, it's a, it's a mark of working uh, power. Now, in Japan, one of the reasons they did not have an inflationary crisis in the 70s is that when the Japanese firms decided to start uh, – in making more efficient their processes to uh, rescue profits, they were going up against basically nothing because the Jap- Japanese working class had been fucking completely lobotomized by the fascist uh, imperial Japanese state. Just like the German working class has been decapitated in West Germany, which is, of course, like has the least, has, has the most American-like uh, political economy that is built up after World War II. Uh, so there's no working class that could really resist it. And so, you know, they were bought off with, uh, with high interest rates in the, in the 70s. I mean, they were bought off with uh, high savings rates and the ability to, like, save money uh, in the 50s and 60s. And then they were just, you know, hyper-exploited. But the uh, European governments all realized there's nothing they can do internally to fix any of these crises because it would mean saying what they meant. It would mean saying like, hey, we actually have to, you have to work for less if you want to work. They didn't want to say that, so they had to walk, talk around it. And so uh, politics became this uh, argument about like, if we could get a euro together, if we could get a fucking euro. Yeah, the, the Japanese uh, thing didn't eventually burst in the 80s. Uh, because all they had, they were like us. Like at the end of the day, all you have is, is more money in the system and eventually... Uh, it pops. Uh, the thing that's preventing it from popping now is just there's nowhere for it to go. But that's going to change with time. But, you know, it's a question. Is there a pop or does the bubble? I would say that we're in a situation where the bubble doesn't pop. It it uh, It is drained, but it is drained in a way that is very violent and not smooth and, in fact, uh, horrifying. Um, but it's not does not destroy the central machine that is necessary, remember, to keep all this going, because they still need the U.S. state with its money and its nukes to not fall apart. They really need America to still be America as we understand it, where the treats flow more than anything. Like, you can't have a country with 3,000 nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, a a currency with its level of uh, market penetration and, and like the consumer heartland of the world, you can't just have them fall into oblivion because then everything will fall apart. Now, eventually they could fall into oblivion, but it would have to be long after uh, their uh, power had been depleted through that exsanguination I'm talking about. And that's why I think it's more likely that the thing is going to be just Dracula drained to death because 
The other is uh, a outcome that you know other stakeholders in global capitalism have a interest that aligns with capitalism's to prevent. But eventually, eventually, you cannot sustain profit and human intervention in the system, not just the democracy, human intervention of any kind. And when I say that, I mean people acting within the system and believing themselves to be in, part, in control of it. And then we're going to be, if there's people left, they're going to be like the people in Crimes of the Future, if anyone has seen that movie. Uh, just a bunch of esthetes who uh, are you know, living in the ruins but uh, are technologically kept in sort of a bubble uh, with the last remaining uh, profit being accumulated because it has to go somewhere. Uh, just you know, doing uh, rituals of sublimation of their sense of responsibility for their condition and why things are the way they are. So anyway, in Japan, they were swaddled like a baby all through the 70s. Just you can have capital controls, you can have tariffs, but we're not we're going to let in all the Japanese uh uh stuff you want because you are too crucial to geostrategic politics in the in uh Asia. You are our bulwark. Because remember, China fell in 52 or in 48, I'm sorry. Uh China fell. Japan is the only country with like a left that has is anything like a, a developed power to like project and and uh and circulate American power throughout the region. So they had to keep it propped up. So they allowed their industry to just almost overnight go from uh like you know uh, textiles they they go they do a speed run through the whole nineteenth century. They go within a few decades they go from textiles to um to light machinery and electronics to fucking cars to industrial shit. Like they go through the same process that, you know, killed however many million people in Russia. Uh, it all goes out peacefully because it's being, all the misery is elsewhere. It's, it's in the places where uh, uh, value is being pulled from the earth at no recompense, you know, through coercion. And it's, and they, they give it, they swaddle it. I mean, like you can look at, South Korea and Japan basically were given the the profits of African uh, uh, economic activity during that whole time, and this means they have a weak labor movement because its structures have been destroyed by the war. And then, you know, they didn't get high wages there, uh, but they were able to uh, save more money uh, and and. Imagine like a, uh, a horizon of security and home ownership, which kept them relatively docile, you know, along with whatever cultural uh, processes there might stamp down class conflict. Uh, so, yeah, there's lower inflation, higher on a, uh, high, but higher levels of exploitation. And, uh, and that, uh, so you have, uh, there's lower inflation during this period, 70s, but it's because you get on one hand high exploitation and then the other, a low cost of capital in the form of cheap fucking credit, low interest rates, which go all the way through the 80s until they're no longer sustainable in a, in a, in a global system of, of, of circulating capital and circulating currency, and popped. And that's where you get the, the 90s as the Japanese uh, uh, 
lost decade. I mean, these were people who were Americans were freaking out about Japan taking over the world. H.W. Uh, went over there and barfed on their fucking prime minister. Michael Crichton wrote a book that became a movie uh, about uh, Japanese intrigues and industry. And it, oh, man, you should see it. Rising Sun, uh, uh, Sean Connery, Will, Wesley Snipes. It's a hoot and a half. It's a hoot and a half. The movie Gung Ho, if everybody's any seen, everyone's any seen that one with uh, with Michael Keaton. With Michael Keaton, that's a good movie. Uh, Ron Howard, I believe, it's one of his better films. Honestly, I think it's kind of underrated. Uh, of course, it's you know, it's capitalist propaganda, but it's Hollywood. But it's a fun movie. But anyway, all of a sudden, overnight, yeah, don't worry about the Japanese. And you know, the reason they couldn't hack it take the ball from us and like go to the super scion level is because they didn't have the population. They didn't have the level of capital development to do it. Uh, they couldn't hold it up. And the, and the reason we're not having a pop now is because China can't do it. That's, that's what's going to keep things from popping off is that China can't do it yet. And then honestly though, the thing is, I don't think China can ever do it because when I say it, I mean, harness themselves to capitalism in a way that promises like uh, continued standard of living rising for their citizens. That can't happen in the, uh, in the ecological and eco- uh, geological uh, context that we live in. And the thing is, they know that. And so that means that perhaps they're going to bend this curve towards an actual global system, a, a global circulation with no center. And that would be them basically like cutting off their lower limbs and saying like, oh, the least advanced of us are just going to eat, eat it. And they'll say, look, that's terrible, but what's the alternative here? What's the alternative here? Annihilating all life on Earth. And because they, you know, there's still a soul in the party, they won't do that. That's the hope anyway. Again, don't know. Not my problem, really. And again, if I knew for sure, what would it make me do? It would make me try to convince you of it. And again, if you if you agreed with me, what are you going to do? Again, what rather wins repeat, our discrete opinions on any individual subject can't matter. There's only the collection of our opinions adhered to our experiences and emotions that can generate uh, action, can, can generate a will to anything, a will to act. And that is not determined by what those specific things are. So... It's just, it, it, we all have to reconfigure what we mean by politics. But before that bubble burst in the late 80s, you had this huge profit bubble explode in Japan. That money had to go somewhere, and so it came into American investment. That's why people freaked out partially. Not only were their cars uh, much more uh, competitive than ours, when people were buying Japanese cars like crazy, but they were also buying up Real estate in the United States. Again, the ebb and flow thing. You know, we bought their cars. They come and buy our uh, real estate. The same thing happens with Arab countries and uh, in America in the 1970s. It's in network. And they were buying up treasury bills during this uh, high interest era. Uh, but that cheap yen had a political problem in the United States because it was leading to, or it was understood to be led to in popular culture because here is this foreign country doing something. We can't reckon with what we're doing to ourselves, but we can reckon what a foreign country is doing to us. So when this foreign country is setting uh, their yen too low, 
so that they can have more competitive vehicle prices with us because their cost of labor is lower and they can leverage that into accepting less for the car because they, they've undervalued their currency because they're privatizing that uh, uh, they're privatizing rather than adding to the public purse that productivity raise that's not fair and they, they would say uh Make them revalue it, and because it's uh, it's it's a foreign policy, it's it's another country, and because the U.S. both parties have no interest in like disabusing them the of the idea that yeah it's Japan's fault because they didn't want to fucking say yeah this is actually policies we're carrying out. They said yeah they got to stop it. So there's this plaza agreement that there's an agreement to bring down the cost of the yen, bring down the cost of the dollar, or bring up the price of the yen and bring down the price of the dollar, which had just gotten way too strong in that period. Uh, too many dollars in the U.S. It had to it had to they had to go elsewhere. They needed more exports, and so that was the hope anyway. Uh, and this this thing, this this agreement, integrates Japan more fully into the finance system, and it crucially makes it totally subject to American markets. It's very important. Uh, and what they do is they end up investing a lot of this money uh, in uh, the auto sector in the U.S. Like I said, they didn't just close a bunch of factories in the Rust Belt. In the, in the 80s. They also opened a bunch of factories in the southwest and the southeast in the non-union parts of the country uh, that uh, started putting out, uh, like, hired fewer people because it was more uh, highly automated uh, and paid them less than union workers. So it's like it's all part of the depressionary spiral on, on labor, but it's still, you know, it's investment that builds jobs just at a lower level. Um, but... This is all premised on cheap money. The cheap money gets to a point of instability. They raise the rates, and the whole thing pops, and the Japanese economy collapses. Uh, and I honestly wonder if that's not what they're hoping to do right now. I kind of think that they're looking at what happened with Japan and how, yeah, you know, their economy basically collapsed uh, there, but not as part of a global uh, Great Depression. That's important. Like, there's still, like, the lights are on elsewhere. And, you know, it, 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 it fucked them up, but they're still around. They're, st- they're still, uh, uh, you know, in the G7. They're still part of the team. They're on the fashion, they're on the, they're part of the, the capital cycle here. They're, they're moving the capital through the way it has to be. Maybe we could do that here. And, of course, that, you know, overlooks the fact that, uh, that the sinews of state are so fucking rickety here and the, the social network that allows people to uh, accept something like a massive collapse in living standards uh, with something approaching equanimity is, is, is liquidated. So it'll be very interesting to see if they're, if they're, if they're pulling a, a, a Japanese late 80s type deal or, late, or early 90s. I can't remember. So for the rest of the world, while this is happening, and the financialization bleeds through everything, these guys who are trying to catch up to the first world with their input substitution, uh, and sometimes with the aid of the U.S., who understood that these, like, if not for the communists, the threat of the communists, these states have to be structured, they have to be uh, durable. And that means there has to be some sort of domestic economy. So there is, like, a grudging support for ISI, ISD uh, and for, you know, the, the larger of the post-colonial countries and <laughs> the developing states in Latin America to build their own economies. But when the Volcker shock kicks in, and people call it the Volcker shock now, kind of, you know, to talk about 
the interest rates as a whole. But the Volcker shock, to me, refers specifically to how it was felt in Latin America, because there it really was a shock in a way it wasn't anywhere else. Because they had borrowed a bunch of money to do their uh, to defund their you know economies and to to keep the development system going and trying to you know develop those internal markets that are so crucial, uh, and they needed to do it on borrow money because you know they were fucking running uphill with a backpack. Uh, and when that interest rate hits their borrowing uh, ledger, they all of a sudden basically go and solve it because they cannot pay the new interest rates. It's basically what happened to uh, the adjustable rate homeowners in nineteen in 2008. Uh, and, of course, the IMF is there to do there what they did in... Uh, uh, to do there what they did in England. Structural adjustment on the condition of the, uh, bro- the breaking of the public sector and the end of uh, trying to build... Sorry, buddy, you're not building in, uh, industry anymore, except... Uh, some of you can be a place for foreign capital to park itself uh, and provide a uh, low-wage proletarian labor for. You're not going to have any domestic industry with like a domestic uh, 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 distribution of profits. No, no, no. Those profits come with us. You, we leave you uh, the, the, the cost of maintenance and we leave you the pittance of salary we give to these people uh, whose exploitation is the whole point of the operation. And that means you can't develop. You're done. Everyone's done. Everyone's treading water uh, and been seeing the thing slowly fall apart ever since, which is, of course, why there's this big fucking, uh, at least part of the reason why, there's a large immigration problem now. Uh, Because at the end of the chain, once we now have immunitized, realized global capitalism, global capitalism means like industrial or uh, some countries close to capital uh, with domestic uh, consumer industries at at every level, at at a consumer economy. And a consumer economy, to an extent, has to have a political component. It has to have a a public uh, sphere of discretion in order for uh, the the whole cycle of uh, of consumption to, to generate. Like, you have to be seeking something. You have to be seeking something through the affirmation of choice that is elsewhere denied you. And that, that dream relies on rituals of choice. And that means you have to have a ritual of political choice. But that, that ritual has real effects on like how exactly efficiently capitalism can operate. Uh, but in these, in these places that got capitalism last, where, where there was no development because all of the profits were first expropriated f- directly for, cap- for the West in the form of imperial uh, spoils, or after the end of imperialism, uh, extracted by the multinational corporations that came, as I said, and did what they later were able to do in Latin America after the, the Volcker shock. And that created this new bipolar world where you've got people at one end uh, concentrating, uh, consuming the production of people at the other end, because, you know, the actual production is at the level of resource extraction and manufacturing and shipping 
That's still old-fashioned Dickensian Victorian capitalism, the kind that should lead to the building of durable, working-class political and, frankly, military institutions that are able to to compete uh, with capitalism for power. But we have those now scattered and broken throughout a geographically diverse periphery, and then little blobs of internally geographically diverse uh, uh, poverty within. It's a hell of a system. I got to give him credit for it. And by him, I don't mean any of us. We're too stupid. But the real god of capital, I got to give it to him. Uh, old, old Satan. I really do think it's, it, is, it is a real god uh, that displaced and dethroned the old god uh, for everyone. That's what I mean, though. It's not, not, not for just believers, for everyone. Uh, because even though, you know, you had horrifying regimes of class rule before that. You had notions of a holy and a sacred that had transcendent qualities, that transcended any individual, and that could at any time touch any individual. And I'm not just talking about Christianity. Any, all of the great and small religious traditions. But those feelings persist because they're human feelings. But our name for them, our names for them has now been... uh, They've been drained and desacralized and turned into these empty categories that are only cynical shells for class rule and for accelerating alienation and and surrendering of human value to an algorithm, an incantation, a spell. But, you know, the apocalypse comes for all of us, but not all at once. That's the fantasy. Like in the early 1600s, everyone in Europe, Christian and Protestant, was 100% convinced that the world was about to end. And the thing is, for them, the ones who died in the, in the, in the, in the crisis of the 17th century, from like 1618 to 1640, like the Thirty Years' War era, and a little bit before, it, it came. If you died during a village destruction by some Swedish fucking uh, uh, cavalrymen, or or of a resurgent plague epidemic that that rampaged through the continent, or or of a famine, which were uh, the frequent result of of punctuated uh, uh, crop failures caused by the Little Ice Age, by the the climate shift that that dropped global temperatures by 2 degrees centigrade. One way or another, that death was part of a great... uh, Tribulation, and the, therefore your death had the had that architecture to it. You found out, like God's judgment, you found it, one way or the other. Um, but then there's, what about everybody left? What about everybody who lived? It felt apocalyptic, but you know their whole lives it sucked. It was apocalyptic, and once once they survived it, in retrospect. It becomes just some more stuff that happened. And the apocalypse stays on the horizon because it always has to. Because they cannot reconcile their lives to their, to their values. Because we live under class rule, which was never overthrown by this, convul- this convulsion. And so we have to build new structures around these terms with, and, and give our feelings a ra- uh, relationships to these, these terms. 
And it meant that what we were worshiping the whole time, like once it comes into being, uh, is not is not any embodiment of human value. It is an embodiment of the uh, value of the extraction of profit, which is domination, which is separateness and difference. It's it's literally the fucking uh, it's antimatter, and you know it's part and parcel of life. It's built into our alienation from ourselves that is inherent to human life. You don't get rid of alienation completely. It's impossible. We're not animals. We can't. We are different animals. I should say our our capacity for reflection means that we cannot be uh, unalienated the way that we imagine, fantasize we could be, and the way that we imagine animals are. And that is always going to be there. Um, but the question is, what name do we give it? And we've na- we've given that that gap, that that little that separation. Uh, instead of trying to to remove it with our concepts, uh, we are deciding to worship it. We're worshiping the void, uh, the separateness. And all of our actions in the market reinforce that that's what those words mean. Because we have this Roman conception of identity centered on possession, ownership. That's why the empire never ended. Philip K. Dick was correct. And I think that uh, Grabgro, to go back to the dawn of everything, they make a convincing case for what was life, what, what life was like when you know that alienation was just something that was dealt with as part of a more uh, uh, grounded and holistic politics and and religion. This is the crucial part that that dealt with all that stuff that didn't allow the accumulation of alienation. But again, after to- over time, enough trauma is going to bend things in one direction or another. And then if that trauma encounters the material to uh, reify itself, like horses and bronze, then it's going to do so. And it's going to dominate every other form of life because they don't have the imperative to own. And then the Romans are the ones who define that most purely and built the most enduring institutions and structures that reinforce these ideas over time. So that when they collapsed, even though their power could no longer be uh, extended out uh, physically, psychologically, it was still the prevailing idea of the entire people. And everything they built after that, including their idea of Christianity, was built on top of it without knowing it, without knowing that Christ was trying to prevent that very thing from coming into being. Christ was, try- was, was saw and tried to stop that thing from emerging. But now, built by it, molded by it, that system of values that is deeper than any name we give to it, because it it organizes our lives and our relationships with each other in ways that we can't choose, then Christianity becomes a parody of itself. And Christ becomes Satan. And of course, the Protestants immediately decided, like, almost... Like Martin Luther starts off being kind of conciliatory toward the, toward the Pope, but like as soon as the Pope tells him to fuck off after uh, worms, he was like, actually, the Pope is the Antichrist. And it's like, yeah, of course, of course the Pope's the Antichrist because he represents to you everything about Christianity that corresponds to the deeper rot of the ownership 
uh, theology that our Christianity is built on top of. But he can't see it. The experiences of life to allow him to see it and articulate it don't exist. So he has to project it onto the fucking the Catholics. Because if the Catholics had just listened to him and read the book and come to the same conclusion as him, well, then, God damn it, everything would have been fine. We would have had our heaven on earth. But, of course, we can't have that because these people who are most powerful in society, they understand Christ as the guy who gave them all the stuff they have. And so they have to project to the other and then try to destroy one another. And then when everybody's out of that, they build a new God that allows them to uh, sublimate that conflict. Like, the Protestants sort of have to, as things get worse, the Protestants have to decide that the Catholics are Antichrist, right? That the Pope's the Antichrist. Because they have to they deal with all the horror that's happening, and they have to stop it. And this is how you stop it, kill the Antichrist. But that means, like, actually going to war, and that's disruptive. What's much better is if that, the Antichrist becomes invisible. And all of the evil that we are doing becomes unspeakable. And so we imagine that, that Satan is this, is, is, is this thing tempting us, when in reality Satan is, our, is, our, is the shape of our actions. And it's only our sublimated guilty consciousnesses that uh, require this, this foil to contemplate. And that's why relig- Christ- uh, monotheistic religion has to, at the end of the day, become fascistic. It has to try to seize the state to compel, because more deeply than it believes in humans, it believes in ownership, because it is this unreconstructed, totalizing ideology that has to be stood against at its root. And the root is nothing to do with the fucking trinity. It has nothing to do with any theological question or moral question beyond, is there a transcendent right to property? And I say no. I don't think there's any argument you can make for it that does not presuppose class society. And I say we have lived out of class society before we could live in it again. But that's because we have the capacity to seize our institutions and direct them that way. We could only do it once we had the concentrated capital capable of it. That's why the medieval peasants could not build socialism in the crisis of the fucking 17th century. All they could do is do... In- uh, die uh, in starvations and, and famines and, and uh, raids by soldiers, uh, get killed in feudal revolts that they can't coordinate well enough to uh, defeat like mercenary armies sent by uh, rich uh, princes. Uh, they either died... Uh, or they, you know, blamed it on witches. That's the, the witch craze of the 18, 1630s is the world coming to the, at the seams and someone having to be blamed for it. There's also obviously a bunch of anti-Jewish pogroms, but the height of witch mania was at the height of the fucking Thirty Years' War in, in the worst part hits of Germany. 
Somebody had to pay for it. And it couldn't be the, the Lord because that is an existential conflict that you can't win. Some fucking old lady on the edge of town, you can beat the hell out of her. You can fucking wrap, wrap her. You can wrap her to a fucking stake and you can set her on fire. You can do whatever you want to, to vent the, the misery of your life that doesn't involve conf- confrontation with power. But you couldn't have because there's no structures to accommodate it. The working class is always supposed to do it. The working class, WC, failed in the 20th century. We are now in a situation where you cannot really talk about people as being members of a class. So we're just, we're the global citizen. I guess this is some heart and negri shit, but I do think it's true. Uh, and we're still going to organize along class, though, is the thing. Because the only people who are going to be alienated enough from the system to actually risk confrontation with it are those who are the farthest from capital and therefore the most, the closest to real alienation. And that doesn't just mean, you know, the, the global poor and unemployed reserve army, but also the, the most hyper-exploited among laborers, which still need to be there. We have not fully automated this economy by a fucking long shot. There's still plenty of people, even at the center of the system, that have to do shitty, long, grueling work for low money. And so, and the, the, the tools exist for them to organize. It's not going to look like uh, the old organization, though, because those categories have been emptied of meaning. We're building new ones every day, and I don't know what they are. I hate having to fucking always end it that way, but it's just a mandala, man. It's the Western fantasy that you can straighten the mandala and just walk up it like a staircase. You got to keep going around in circles. Sorry, you gotta. I know it's a cop out, but you get to the top of the fucking dark tower and you open the door. You're just gonna find yourself in the fucking west, chasing the red, the the uh, chasing the man in black. And maybe you've got the el, the horn of eld in your hand this time, and maybe that'll mean something. But it's nothing that you can intuit. All right. So next Tuesday we'll talk about chapters nine and ten, which is about going to be about. Uh, the super hyper-financialization leading up to the big collapse. And then I think they're going to talk about what's next. And I'm very interested to see how they talk about that because the thesis of their book is that the state is inextricably linked to capital. The U.S. state has been the most important single uh, institution in bringing about global capitalism. But now we're in a situation where, like, the demands to to equalize the flow that, our, that a system in crisis requires are uh, running up against the fact that the U.S. government, you know, has a the U.S. state is now have a directly contradictory interest to that because if they're not at the center of this thing, we're not getting the treats anymore. End of story. And the treats are the only reason any of this works. I know that's snide to say, oh, treats. You're talking about things like dialysis and you know school lunches. It's like, yeah, I know, I know, but it's a consumer economy. It means everything from things people really need to things that people don't really need at all. But psychologically, they need them. It's the, it's the addiction economy. And people are going to get weaned off at one re- speed or another. And the faster they're weaned off, the more violent the response is going to be. The slower they're weaned off, and, 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 you know, and that's what the U.S. wants to do. But they're pulling against now. They're pulling against the reins. And so what kind of... Equilibrium do we settle into? That's the question I would like to ask it. And um, apparently, uh, uh, Sam Gindin, the co-author, uh, uh, has been made aware of the stream, and he might come on at the end when we're done with the book and talk about that. I'd be interested to hear his thoughts. So, all right, this is another long one. Sorry about that. Next Tuesday, we'll talk chapters 9 and 10, 
the making of global capitalism. Bye-bye.